that psalm extols the great king. And as such, it extols the one to whom our text this morning ultimately points. I'd like to read with you from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've been going through the Old Testament in various parts, looking at how God revealed to His people of old and how He reveals to us today the coming of His Son and what He would come to do and what He would come to be. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've skipped ahead. Last two times we've looked at David. We considered together how David was anointed to be king, even though he was just merely a shepherd, a young man, probably a teenager. We saw last time how he was brought forth into battle against Goliath, a man before whom the whole army of the Israelites shuddered and shaked and refused to face him. And yet God gave David both the faith and the skill. So that by his strength, he would defeat Goliath and and the nation would gain a great victory over their enemies. Demonstrating, well, demonstrating the power of Christ to conquer on our behalf. Well, now we advance forward. Saul is no longer king. David has risen to the throne. His enemies have been defeated. (coughs) And uh, it's a time of peace. It's a time of prosperity. And David... Well, David wants to show thanks. Listen. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Whenever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy 
shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. (coughs) Beloved congregation of Christ... Our God is utterly and absolutely unique. Back in Israel's days, the gods of the nations were viewed somewhat as mercenaries. In Egypt, Pharaoh Thutmose III believed that his god, Amon-Re, would give him victory and establish his power because Thutmose had surpassed all the other kings in his building projects on behalf of Amun-Re. His, one of his successors, Pharaoh Amun-Hotep, he confessed and, and wrote down in all his writings that Amun-Re would, would subdue his enemies, would uh, give him triumph and prosperity to his people because he had surpassed all of his predecessors in seeking to give honor and build memorials for his God. In Assyria, Esarhaddon, one of the great kings, early kings of Assyria, rebuilt the temple of his god Ashur, and he attributed that act as the reason that Ashur gave him victory and allowed him to build the kingdom of Assyria. That's how the gods of the nations always were thought to work. You honor them. You serve them. And in reward, in response, they bless you. All the gods of Canaan were like that. And folks, the gods of today, the false gods of today are no different. Look at one of the biggest religions in the world, Islam. It's all about seeking to appease and draw the praise of an angry, impersonal, distant God, doing so by your work, by your devotion, and even by your self-sacrifice. Their gods are mercenaries. They bless only in response to the payment of men, but our God is different. With Him, the works of His people are always a response. He calls His people and they answer. He blesses His people and they respond. He shows grace toward Israel and their works reveal their gratitude. The true God always takes the initiative in showing grace to His people. And so it is with this text before us this morning. David has come to a place of peace and prosperity. God had raised him up. God had given him rest from his enemies. God had given him a measure of prosperity. And now David wants to respond by showing his thanks. He wants to build a temple to replace the tabernacle. A house of cedar to replace the the tent of cloth. But, as good as that plan seemed to him, and even to the prophet Nathan, God says no. Because God had not yet completed the work of grace that he sought to do for David. He told David to wait, to halt, because he was going to do something even greater, something so much greater that it would leave David speechless with his 
generosity. And that promise, it wasn't just for David. And it wasn't just for the people of Israel back then. That promise lies right at the heart of the hope that we hold today. So let us consider then how God promises to build David's house as a perpetual blessing for Israel, for the church. That's our theme. God promises to build David's house as a perpetual blessing for Israel. And that begins with how he would establish his people as a kingdom of peace. But first the question, why was the presence of Yahweh still dwelling in a tent? See, that, that's what David was seeking to remedy. He thought it was shameful that he was living in this beautiful house made of cedar, made of fine wood. A place of security, a place of, of warmth and comfort. While the ark of God, which represented his throne in heaven, was surrounded by fabric. A movable structure that surely by this time was probably showing its age. Why was God continuing to dwell in a tent? And God answers that just before our text. And the heart of that answer in verse 7 is this. I have moved about with all the children of Israel. God's presence dwelt in a tent because His people were not yet secure. Up until this point, Israel had been on the go in various degrees. First in the wilderness, as they moved from place to place to place on their way to the promised land. Then as they entered the promised land and slowly but surely began to take over the place. And then in the period of the judges, where the people moved from this place to that place, always pushed and and chased by their enemies. Until the people were settled, God refused to be settled. As long as the people were on the move, God's presence was on the move. That tells us something essential about our God, doesn't it? He is not the God whom, whose people serve Him from afar, a distant God who is unaffected by the, the struggles and strife of His people. No, He is with His people. He's the one who guides them personally by His presence among them, who endures with His people all of the hardships and the woes and the struggles of life. Our God understands His people because He endures their struggles with them. And so God dwelt in a tent, unsettled because His people were not yet settled. And then the Lord shifts gears a bit. He reminds David of the grace that he himself has already received. Notice he identifies himself as, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who delivered them out of the hand of Egypt. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord who controls all the armies of the earth, the Lord who brings to bear even the armies of heaven. This omnipotent God has exalted His servant. David was a lowly shepherd following after the sheep. And God called him forth, not because he was impressive, not because he had done great works, but because he delighted God. Period. End of sentence. God chose to be delighted in David. And so He exalted him as the king. And more than that, I have been with you wherever you have gone. David's calling was overwhelming. He was called to defend all the people of God from their enemies without. The Philistines on one side. Moab and Edom and the rest on the other side. Roving bands of marauders. 
also from evil people within he was to defend them. Upholding law and order in the land. And above all of that, more important than all of that, he was to set an example before the people that they might follow. He wasn't sufficient. But God says, I was with you. He gave him the strength. He provided for him the guidance. And more than that, I have cut off all your enemies before you. God is the one who gave David the victory. God is the one whose power cut down the enemies. And I have made your name, made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. David was honored among the men of his age. But that honor itself was from God. It was a gift. David has been blessed beyond belief for Israel. But now why does God remind David of all of this? Why is he suddenly looking backward? There's two reasons. First of all, he wants David to recognize the mercy he's received. David didn't earn any of it by his mighty deeds. David hadn't obligated God in any way to bless him, to provide for him. Absolutely, utterly unlike the gods of the heathen nations, our God is not mercenary. David could not stand before him as though there was some kind of quid pro quo, as though he had done something and now he deserved something. David understood that. But God wanted him to be absolutely confident of it. He stood where he stood by grace alone. And at the same time, he needed to see how trustworthy God is. God had made him promises early on. When he raised him up as king, that he would be with him, that he would provide for him, that he would protect him. And God had. David needed to see that because he was about to hear a promise that was even greater than anything God had yet done. And he needed to know that God who made that promise was absolutely able to keep it. And then we see those promises. Now those promises, beginning in verse 10, focus on Israel. Notice the pattern in what God says here. First he says, look at what I've done for you, David. Now this is what I promised to do for my people. And then he returns to David and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. That pattern, first David, then Israel, then David, shows that Israel is at the heart of his concern. God is going to richly bless David. But he's going to do so for the sake of Israel. He's going to do so for the sake of his people. That's how he always works. He chose this people for himself to glorify him, to delight him. And so he would do what was necessary in order to bless them. And that's what he was doing with David. The promise concerning Israel is threefold. First of all, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. That was important for a people that had long been nomads. I mean, for 40 years out in the wilderness, sure, but for the last several hundred years, under the judges, their capital, their their chief city kept moving from place to place to place because they couldn't hold the land. The enemies kept attacking on every side, kept pushing them from this side and from that. And the people themselves would would sin, would rebel against God, and so he would have to raise up enemies against them. But now God says, I will appoint a place for them. They will have a home. And not only will they be given a place, but secondly, he says, I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. He will not just 
say, this is your place, go take it. He's going to plant them. What a beautiful image. Think of a gardener who absolutely delights in his produce. Right? He, he takes care of those plants. He nurtures them from seedlings. Takes them out as soon as the frost is finally, definitively gone. But even then he shelters them. He fertilizes them. He weeds them. He cares for them. So that they'll bring forth fruit. So that they'll bring forth the glory of what they were made to do. That's what God's promising to do here for Israel. He's going to nurture and care for them that they might become what they were designed to be. And having been planted, Israel will, now our translation says, will move no more. But the verb there has a sense of of shaking, of quivering, especially in fear. A better rendering might be they will be disturbed no more or they will tremble no more. In other words, they will know security Because God is keeping them safe. Because God is defeating their enemies. Because the Lord our God, even as He uses the servants He sets over them, like David, He will make them secure. This is what God promises His people. A home well-rooted and safe. What a rich blessing for a people that had known only the nomadic life of those harassed by their enemies on every side. But listen, this points to something far bigger. Because for a time, under David and Solomon, they did have security. And at times, under the subsequent kings, they knew peace and prosperity. But they were rebellious. They kept turning away from the Lord. They kept embracing lies and and sins and rebellions. And God would have to chastise them. And so they would lose for a time their security. And ultimately, they lost it in the exile. Today, this promise applies to the church, not merely in terms of our our physical situation. After all, God has called forth a people in every land. We're mobile. It's, It's no violation of God's promise when He calls us to rise up from this place and go to that place. But nonetheless, He has given us a place in the church. Wherever you go, brothers and sisters, when you gather with the saints of God, when you gather with those who, like you, confess Christ, you are home. You're in your family, you're in your place, and there you are well-rooted. Well-rooted, not merely in a house made of sticks and drywall. No, you are well-rooted in God's Word, which He applies to your heart daily by the Holy Spirit, by which He leads you and guides you and keeps you secure. You have no reason to fear, no reason to tremble as long as you are rooted in that Word. Because you're home and God is protecting you. Depart from there. Depart from that Word. Reject the care of God. And and you're going to be just as unsettled as Israel was when they departed from Him and rebelled against Him and were caused to be exiled into the nations. But as long as you are well-rooted in God's Word, as long as you are in that place, the church where God has put you, you have no reason to tremble or fear. And even that points towards something greater, doesn't it? Even today, the, the security that we know is but a foretaste of the fullness of this promise. 
Because there will come a time when all that opposes God will be no more. His every enemy will be judged. All that would threaten us will be removed. And in that day we will be perfected. The creation will be perfected. And we will dwell in the fullness of the presence of God. We know this because Jesus has already won the victory. We know this because Jesus already ascended to heaven as the first fruits of the harvest. Our flesh and blood sits at the right hand of God even today. He is in our place where one day we will be well rooted when heaven and earth are reunited and we're perfected and the light of God shines replacing the sun for giving forth light. That's what's coming. That's the home to which Israel's home could merely point. Glorious promise, brothers and sisters. We have to look forward to that. We have to revel in what is coming. And yet there's one more promise. Because David had desired to make a house for the Lord, but now God says, I will make a house for you. And remember, this is in service to that great promise to Israel. He promises he's going to make Israel this kingdom of peace, eternal peace. And to that end, he's going to make a house for David. You see, the question that arises after hearing this promise to Israel. He's going to give them a place. He's going to make them well-rooted. He's going to ensure that they no longer will tremble. How's he going to do that? And the way he's going to do that is by building David a house by means of his son. And so that's our second point we see here is he's going to enthrone David's son as the perfect king. Listen to verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that. God is concerned for his glory, but he's concerned especially for the kingdom, for Israel, for the people of God, which today has been drawn from not just the seed of Abraham, but the people of all the world. He will raise up David's son to sit upon the throne. He will raise up David's son to do what David desired to do, to build a house for God. This son is the one who would build a place where God's name and His glory would dwell. A place that would represent the heavenly throne room of God. Now, why wouldn't David himself be allowed to do that? Well, in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, David explains that he was prohibited because he was a man of war who had shed much blood. In other words, David wasn't holy enough to build that holy place where God's presence would dwell. But his son, the fruit of his body, would rule over the kingdom for him, would build the house on his behalf, and God would establish that son's throne forever. And God would do more than just bless him. He was going to adopt him. Listen to verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. The act of adoption is really glorious. Sometimes you hear those who've been adopted wondering if they're like second class children. You're not. As one who is adopted, you've been intentionally chosen to be drawn into the family. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful act? And that's what God says He will do for David's son. I will make him my own. And I will discipline him. 
when he disobeys, when he sins. He would use the rod of men to discipline. And he, he did. We'll get to that. But beyond that, not only will he discipline him, and that's an act of love. Kids, you understand that, right? If your parents didn't care about you, they wouldn't discipline you. If they didn't care how you acted, if they didn't care whether you learned to obey God, they wouldn't discipline you. They discipline you so that you'll learn that disobedience hurts, disobedience against God. And so that you'll learn that that true happiness and true blessing is found in obeying the Lord. So God would discipline David's son, but then he promised, Never will I take from you my mercy. The word that's rendered mercy there, many translations render it steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is it's love and mercy and faithfulness all wrapped up together in the covenant. It's that promise that God will be with us and He will care for us and He will correct us and He will draw us back when we drift. Saul knew a taste of that, but in his rebellion he rejected both God and his steadfast love. But David's son would never ever lose that mercy. Folks, this is quite the promise. David is given the honor of knowing that his son would be regarded as God's son and that God would nurture him and guide him and always care for him. Now when we think of these promises, we think immediately of Solomon, and we should. Of course, David had several sons. But Solomon was the one who most clearly reflected David's heart and mind. Solomon was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem. He acted on the plans that David had prepared. He called forth the craftsmen and rallied the people around the project. And Solomon then completed the the dream, the, the longing that David had held. Under Solomon, the kingdom was established indeed. Under his reign, the people knew prosperity like they had never known before and never would know again. God's people would exercise authority over a vast swath of the Middle East. And they would receive respect from the world over. Solomon was disciplined by God. Kids, you remember what Solomon did, right? He made the fatal error of marrying not just one unbelieving woman, but a number of unbelieving women. And they led him astray. They led him to serve false gods. And so God punished him. But the worst of the punishments he withheld. Because he refused to remove his mercy from Solomon. And so the punishment wouldn't be inflicted until Solomon was dead. Meanwhile, Solomon was known for the rich blessings that God had bestowed upon him, the wisdom that allowed him to answer any challenge, riches like no one had ever seen, peace and prosperity, the likes of which only God could send. Surely in Solomon we see a a fulfillment of God's promises to David here, but only a fulfillment, not the fulfillment. See, Solomon was imperfect. He did marry those unbelieving wives. He did turn aside to false gods. His kingdom was still filled with sinful people who did sinful things. He couldn't bestow upon them the ultimate blessing and the ultimate riches for which we long. The greater son of David was still to come and that son came in the name of Jesus. From the very start, Jesus was known to his mother as the son of God. When the angel told her that, he was alluding to this passage. 
He said Jesus would be the seed, the true seed of David and therefore also the Son of God. And in fact, at the start of his public ministry, at his baptism, God the Father spoke to Jesus saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not only was he the Son, but he was the one whom God established on the throne of the kingdom. At the very start of his ministry, he came proclaiming, Repent, or the... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so he went throughout all the land proclaiming the coming of the kingdom on the throne of which he was destined to sit. Jesus came to build the house of God in its truest form. Not a house made of wood and stone, but a house constructed of people. A house made out of souls in whom God himself would dwell personally. It's because of Jesus' work that Paul could write in Ephesians 2 of us that we are a holy temple in the Lord, being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus is making us to be a temple. And He has brought us into the kingdom that has no end. The angel told Mary when he first announced Jesus' coming, He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And after He had completed the work that was given Him to do, the angels in heaven, according to Revelation 11, proclaimed this, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. You see, Jesus is the true and complete fulfillment of the promise that God made here to David. And it's in Him that those promises come to us. Because you see, David, or sorry, Jesus, like Solomon, he was punished. But unlike Solomon, he wasn't punished for his own sin because he never sinned. He never had any sin. He was punished for our sin. Though he was the true and natural Son of God, we had to be adopted. And we could only be adopted if our sin was removed and we were made holy. And he did that by accepting our punishment for us. And then God demonstrated his steadfast mercy to him. By raising him up from the grave after he had been dead for three days. By by causing him to ascend into heaven at his right hand. And from there, he sent his spirit to regenerate our hearts. To bring us into the faith. To incorporate us into him. To give us all of the mercy. All of the steadfast love that, that alone can give us life. He is the one who has gathered us together into a kingdom. Who is building us into a temple who is making us to be that kingdom of peace. Brothers and sisters, understand, this is all of the promises that God gave to Abraham, all of them being focused together into David's greater son, Jesus. And today, today we have the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. We don't see it yet. We don't see the fullness of the kingdom yet. We don't see the fullness of the blessing that he's going to bring. We still feel a bit unsettled, don't we? 
But already the victory has been won. Already the kingdom has been established. Already peace is ours. Even though we still live in the midst of the battle. Our calling then. Our calling is in Psalm 2. What we heard in our assurance of pardon. We live in a world that's filled with people who rage and fight against the Lord. But we know that God has said, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And the Son has said, The Lord said to me, You are my Son today, I have begotten you. The Lord God has given His Son the kingdoms of the earth, and He has given Him the power to forgive sin and impart blessing that is everlasting. So, brothers and sisters, our calling is to trust in the King, the greater Son of David, and having trusted in Him to live as the living temple, to live as His servants. How do we do that? We follow the commands of the King. But we must learn the lesson of our text. We don't do so ever, ever. Children, young people, hear this. We do not obey the Lord. We do not take up His Word as though we could earn anything by that. We can't. Just as He showed David, He has raised us up. He has established us in our calling. He has given us salvation. He has done it all. What we do is merely the response But it's an absolutely necessary response because the children of the kingdom always follow their king. Brothers and sisters, God promised millennia ago to build David's house as a perpetual blessing for Israel. And in Jesus, He fulfilled that promise. So let us rejoice that God has blessed us so richly and let us receive what He has given, what He has done. Because in Jesus alone is there hope and help and life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have given us such an amazing gift in sending Your Son Jesus as our King. And we pray that You would continue to build the kingdom and gather in those whom You have ordained to be part of it. And we pray that You would work in our hearts that we might live as members of the kingdom that we might obey the voice of our King and delight to serve Him. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' holy name alone. Amen.